to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author of A List of Demonic Names, A Pocket Guide for the Paranormal Investigator, Exorcist, Psychic, and Metaphysical Practitioner. Monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And this episode is being being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. She's a tarot reader, medium, and psychic. Um, so if you're looking for any advice, guidance, or just want a reading for fun, you can check her out at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further ado, our our guest for today is Richard L. Haight, and he is the author of a bunch of interesting books, some being The Warrior's Meditation, Unshakable Awareness, The Genesis Code, Unbound Soul, and he also has written a book about psychedelics that I want to talk about, too. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Gary. So... A little bit about your background, you know, uh, maybe I read it in your bio, but I would like to start out there for my listeners to get an idea of who you are and what your training is in. Sure. I took interest in the martial arts when I was about 12, and that eventually led me to Japan. And I studied uh, traditional Japanese martial arts, specifically what's called Yagyu Shinkageru. It's a very famous Japanese martial arts system. Uh, but it's not something that uh, most people in the West would know about. Um, and then another art called Daituru Aiki Jiu-Jitsu. This is the predecessor to what we know as modern Aikido. But it was the samurai art, and uh, uh, it's a, a different uh, a different approach to a, a similar principle. Hmm. But it was my my interest in those martial arts was actually. Um, I, I couldn't really explain it, but I was having just having a lot of visionary experiences when I was young, and it, it it eventually culminated in I knew I needed to go to Japan, and that going to Japan to study these martial arts would start to unravel things. I would start to understand right. what was really right. going on with these visions and um, directives that were coming from these visions in my life, and and uh, so that's kind of you know, kind of a very brief description of of what I was up to. So how does that segue into all your other interests, interests such as meditation, consciousness, the Bible, psychedelics? How did those how did those branch out from your foundation in martial arts? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question because actually, they, from my point of view, they're all the same. Um, there's a, a core at the at the very depth of human consciousness. And I was, that's what I'm most interested in. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just seemed like <laughs> my life path brought me to these various different studies, all of which are almost like spokes on a wheel that take you down to the to the hub or to the to the core. Um, so the therapy art that I that I studied, and um, now of course it's it's evolved quite a bit. And the martial arts that I studied, the meditation that I 
um, formulated throughout my life. All of these interests, including even survival type training and things like that, all of these interested were really uh, the, the main the main point was to get to something deeper, a commonality that's actually amongst them all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was, I don't see them as different, actually. <laughs> They're just right. different manifestations of the same thing. I, I completely agree. What mm-hmm. is it you're looking for? Why, why are you traveling down all these different roads? you knowing that they're all going to lead you to the same place, but what is that place? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever had this feeling, but it just, it used to haunt me when I was a child. Uh, and, and that was that, you know, I could see this world and all that's happening in it, but I just felt that there was something behind it, something deeper. And it, it, there's more than, than the eyes can see. And there's a deeper meaning to things than, I just, I just felt this very, very deeply. I, I, can't, I couldn't, I couldn't explain it. I don't think I ever talked about it to anybody, but it was just constantly there in the back of my mind. Um, and so that's what I wanted to discover because I felt like the, the true depth of meaning for a human being, for me, certainly, I was just a child, so it was just for me at that time, um, was to be found when that core level of consciousness becomes, a uh, core level of being becomes conscious in the human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, of course, I was a child. I didn't have that type of realization. I just, I just, I just have to explore. I just have to find out and what it was. I was going to find out exactly. I didn't. I didn't know. And uh, so that's that's what what it's all been about is to get to that core. And so back to your question, because you're you're asking essentially as the mind as it develops, right? It develops through definition through structure in order so that the body can function in the world Mm -hmm. it's creating in a sense kind of or categories that are that are sort of illusions um but they're functional right right if we were to get beyond what our eyes see you know at the at the depth of physics or whatever nothing is really exactly this thing that we you know they're just they're, they're energy fields essentially and so I, I, under, I had this intuitive feeling that the way that we perceive the world, the way that we and the way that we perceive ourselves are connected, and that if we can marry the way we perceive ourselves with the way we see the universe or the world, and the way that uh, with that depth of of perception that we was talking about earlier, if we can marry those three elements, it would be transformative in human life it would somehow curtail malice hmm. it would somehow put the human being into balance as clearly clearly our psyches are not in balance and this is a realization of course that i that occurred to me as as i matured so what three things are we trying to bring together perception consciousness so we have, we have an in, mm. internal perception of ourselves right mm-hmm. so this is our identity okay so and we our ego that out in the world and, and oftentimes the perception that other people have of us doesn't marry how we see ourselves, of course. There's that, right? Right. Right. And so understanding that our mind doesn't stop with our body. Mm-hmm. It spans spatially. It spans temporally time. It's, it spans socially. Everything we do is in this context of time, space, and socialization. And a lot of what we do is not recognizing that fact. And so many of our thoughts and our behaviors are out of context. Mm-hmm. 
And we tend to feel very, very alone, even in a crowded room. Yes. Right. So when we start to marry the depth of consciousness so that we can see the connection between uh, the, that our mind is, is making so that we can perceive the world, which is socially, spatially and temporally, there starts to be a kind of uh, an internal balance, a silencing in a sense. There's a lot of, we'll say, extraneous noise that the mind is doing. That's for sure. Right. Which it's, it's, it's actually has a point. So the mind is haunted by memories, for example, things, some stupid thing you said to a, you know, your girlfriend when you were 16 and, and she broke up with you because of it. And, you know, you're just like you're self-absorbed, but you might remember it back now and, and still be embarrassed about it. Or you you maybe dream about things that happened in the past that, that are really bothering you. These are, they're like hauntings, right? And so we've, the, the essence of the issue is that we've not actually learned the lesson of the experience. The lesson of the experience isn't just strategic, like next time I'll do this, there is that, but it's actually mostly about the attitude. Hmm. The attitude we had in the moment that led us to behave the way we behaved or to be tricked in the way that we were tricked or deceived in the way that we were deceived or whatnot. And the attitude stems from a certain sen sense of feeling in the body that has a lot to do with the way you um, formulate identity. You following this? Yes. All right. And so if we can, if we can marry, the, we're, now we're talking about the spatial or the, the time or temporal mm -hmm. dimension, we can find harmony in the past by exploring the attitude and the feeling that led to the attitude and correcting it, we stop having those hauntings. Now, depression is found in the past from these types of hauntings, right? Depression is so common in our world right now because people have not digested their experiences. But we also have anxiety. That's a projection into the future of what's going to come, right? The hauntings of the past project into the future. So it creates anxiety. We often have depression and anxiety. Right. Right. And so we can't be stable emotionally or fluid even emotionally. It's, it's very, very chaotic space that human beings live in. And this projects out. In judgment so we judge ourselves you know and we judge others morally you know you're you're a bad person you're a jerk you're away you know, all the labels will come up with driving down the car and someone cuts us off how many explicatives come out that son of a bitch oh i never pardon me if i'm breaking any language rules here no language rules here <laughs> <laughs> but i think you get the idea right mm-hmm yeah, yeah, like 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 if you're living in the past and in the future and going everywhere else except in the moment, you're always going to be in a state of tension and stress and discomfort. Um, yeah. When you calm the mind down and just live in the present moment without that extra stuff going on, yes. we are able to experience i mean like, like from a zen point of view that would be like experiencing the truth the true reality is that yeah. of this the exact moment the vibrance of the moment which is you you are the moment yeah it's not, not living in the moment you are the moment that, that's, real, yeah yeah that's, that's where it gets so tricky for me it's like you know i forget that there's really no me right there, i mean well there is a you in the way that your mind formulates things yeah. but it's not actually separate from the environment right we're just sort of fountains of atoms mm-hmm molecules we're, we're the universe speaking we're the universe thinking essentially yeah, right? it's so weird <laughs> right it's an odd perspective but but it's actually the most scientifically correct perspective yes yes like the yes. quantum physics and the observer effect yes it's very counterintuitive that's all 
but and it's not like after you've done sufficient degree of this this of of unraveling this bound energy, what I describe in the unbound soul. It's not like you never have thoughts of the future or the past because you still need to function. So you still have you'll still be planning things. You know, you still have a you know, we're, if we have a business arrangement, I need to actually take some time to think. Okay, what are, what is it we want to achieve in the future? We still have aims and goals and all mm -hmm. of that. It's just that it's not compulsive. We're not being haunted anymore, right? It's not that you don't remember the past or even appreciate the past. It's not a haunting anymore, right? So we we gain the benefit of the memory, and the benefit of the ability to project in the future, without all the negative things or disturbing things that go along with it. And when that happens, something starts to, there's a, there starts to be a greater harmony in the body. It affects your movement, it affects your speech, it affects, everything starts to change. It's, it's pretty phenomenal. Mm -hmm. uh, but so how does that relate to the martial arts? That's the question, right? How does that relate to psychedelics? Yes. That yes. becomes the question. How does that relate to the healing arts? That becomes the important question. Mm -hmm. All of those things become like, in hyperdrive mode, you just become so much more efficient at all of those things. Uh, it, it blows people away that, you know, um, for example, a psychedelic, if you take a heavy dose of mushrooms, it's going to, you're not going to be very functional. Right. But I could take a heavy gross dose of, of mushrooms and be the same. Hmm. It's because I'm living, in a sense, in what I describe as the nexus point. I'm living in this kind of balanced state. It's only when you're really imbalanced that your mind goes into basically like what's psychedelic what's happening is your mind is trying to oftentimes understand something. So like a bad trip. There's a lesson there. Something's not been digested. Mm -hmm. Right. And so your mind is going to go toward in that direction, oftentimes formed in ways that you possibly can't imagine. It's like a dreamlike state. Yeah. on steroids <laughs> right <laughs> but but when if you don't have that built up past you know the east they might call it karma or whatever i call it psychic debt it's like psychological debt mm -hmm. if you don't have much of that then what then you experience some a very different relationship with psychedelics and it starts to become conscious you're lucid in the experience right yeah, I never had a bad trip. You know, I, I mean, I was I always thought maybe I was just lucky. You know. Oh no, no, the luck isn't a bad trip. <laughs> uh, you know, That's where the learning is. <laughs> I never had one. You know, yeah. I mean, I used to smoke angel dust and take acid and mushrooms and. Wow, that's wonderful. Yeah, so I mean, it also may depend on your perspective or, or your your. Um... Kind of, I guess, intention going into it. Like my mm -hmm. intention going into it was actually to find out where the points of imbalance were in my psyche. Yeah. So I suppose that would probably naturally quite take me, <laughs> take me to such a place, right? Yeah. I but guess there it, was a great benefit to it. Yeah. You know? you know? Yeah. I don't know. I mostly just would listen to music, and that's how I would control it. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, I will intentionally think of things that that. Oh well, now I I don't have this issue anymore, but early on or back you know some years back when i when i first started doing this i would intentionally think of things that had disturbed me in my life uh -huh. those haunting feelings because i wanted to i couldn't i couldn't like get to them and i couldn't find clarity in them in those experiences through my daily life 
there was something that was missing. And so it would kind of tune into them and it would take me to horrific places. Hmm. Uh, but, but, the, but it would look like peeling away an onion, you know, and then eventually that illusion of the horror was, was removed and I could see, ah, this is why I'm being haunted by that particular thought or have this kind of compulsion. Right. right. Did you do and, that like by yourself or did you have somebody there with you? Um, if we could turn off the, the audience here. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> listens to what I say. No, I've done all of my psychedelic trips by myself. Uh, um, all those ones. Now, so, sometimes I've, you know, I will um, support other people to go through their processes, in which case I will take the psychedelic with them. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're there at the time. But for, for my own work, I've always done it by myself. Do you recommend um, that? Not necessarily. No. Uh, for, for example, in, uh, in three of those circumstances, it led me to very near suicide. Uh. Very near suicide. So I don't recommend it for other people. Now, I I, I learned from that uh, mm -hmm. because it was, it was obviously something that was leading me to suicidal state. So I talk about, for example, in the unbalance. When I was 16, I was functionally illiterate. And I was just, I was just a... I was a psychological mess of a, of, a, of a kid and I had no, I had this belief that I just had no value. And at some point it starts to have this equation that builds up in your mind where you project into the future. Yeah. I'm already at this point of being utterly useless. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just going to get worse as I get older. Uh, I have no point. There's no point in me living any longer, another mouth to feed, so to speak. Right. And so it led me to a suicidal state. And at, at that time when I was just, actually about to commit suicide, I had a naturally occurring vision. So most of the visions that I've experienced in my life are just naturally occurring. Mm -hmm. And that gave me direction in my life. And it was like I'd become almost a different person overnight because you have purpose. You start to become positive. Your thinking changes. Everything changes. The way you interact with people changes. But still, there's some underlying kind of residue was there that was addressed many years later with psychedelics. Mm. Right. Do you mind sharing what the vision was? Yes, it's uh... <laughs> okay. So imagine you're sitting in your bedroom, it's summer afternoon. Like in my case, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon, maybe four, maybe a little bit later. But it was just enough. It was just late enough that there's a, the angle of the sunlight could come through the window. Right. I'm sitting on the floor of my bed. I've decided I'm finished. I'm going to kill myself. Got it all planned out. I've written my letter, which was, I mean, it was a baffling letter because I started out writing um, how I thank my parents, but this is not your fault. And, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm useless and uh, I just, I, I can't live this way anymore. I'm life of nothing but pain. Something along those lines. So I wrote it and then, you know, I signed it. And at the end I realized this letter isn't going to help anybody. I mean, <laughs> no one can understand this. Mm-hmm. No one can understand what you're going through. So people often think that a suicidal person is irrational. But actually, it was a complete, it was a hyper-rational state that was formulated on a judgment based off of my past failures that projects into the future, right? Not seeing potential. Mm -hmm. So if you get in, if you're living in an anxious enough state, your, your mind is constantly interfering with everything you do. You're not going to do anything very well. But if you can remove that anxiety or transcend that anxiety in some way, suddenly whatever capacity that you have, your potential start to emerge. You might discover you're far more intelligent than you thought you were. You're far more capable than 
you know, physically than you thought you were. You're far more capable in communication than you thought you were, right? Of course, you don't know that until <laughs> until that that spell, that uh, that uh, dark spirit, so to speak, that's been haunting you is is dissipated, uh. right? So I'm sitting there, and I have this realization that this is my last moment. I've written a letter. My weapon is right next to me, and it's my last moment. And I think I just think to myself, I'm just going to close my eyes and just just be with this last moment for a little bit. What's it like to just to just be? I know because I had this realization suddenly. I no longer have a future to fear. What I think about myself doesn't mean anything anymore. All my failures are don't mean anything anymore. Everything anybody ever said about me means nothing anymore because I'm finished in 10 seconds. And it was such a grand feeling. I mean, it just, it was like everything dropped away and there was this vastness and silence, which I couldn't explain. I still can't explain. Me was gone, mm. essentially, for this period of time, which I don't really know how long it was because it was a timeless state. And then the strangest thing happened. It was like my body was like a, you ever seen one of those, uh, those chapel or church bells, those large bells? Yeah. Right. My, my chest became like this bell. It was vibrant with energy. And then a voice, it, my, from my perception, it seemed like a voice came out of my chest, a voice I'd never heard. It was a deep voice, certainly not one I could ever emulate. And it finished the last sentence that I had said to myself, which is now, now it's time to end it. And then I had this thought, okay, I can, now I'm going to spend a little time just, you know, in this, oh, I have no worries. Now it's time to end it. Then the voice said, or you could learn how to read. You could get rid of these people that in your life, these quote unquote friends who are not really friends or just using you to, get high with, right? They don't really care about you. You could find people that actually have a purpose in their life and be, be friends with them. You could learn to be a friend. You can find purpose in your own life. Find something you really want to do that's going to challenge you and move towards that, right? And so it just, it created a plan for me. Hmm. Things that I had never thought of before. And I opened my eyes and in that sunlight, it was actually at the same time that that voice started, that sunlight was coming through. And if you, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but when that sunlight's coming through, you can see the dust in the air. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Right. And this, it'll intersect with the light mm -hmm. and the sparkle. You know, this was some 30 years ago, more than 33 years ago. So I believe what actually happened is I looked at, I saw that sparkle in that same moment. And that's when the voice came. But that sparkle was like, it was like angelically beautiful to me. Hmm. And I had never seen, I was like, I had never noticed it before. It was so strange. But I had just felt, I just felt suddenly so alive. And for some reason that I still to this day can't fully explain, I completely trusted and believed that voice. And I decided I wasn't going to kill myself. I'm going to do those things. Why the hell not? I got nothing to lose. 
Mm. You know, I'm right next to death, so I mean, it can't get any worse. Right. Why, why not? Why not just you know, whole hog into it? I'm just going to do this thing, and that's what I did, and that led me just to a complete life of vibrance and purpose, and um, facing fears and challenges, and you know, going to Japan and doing all this other stuff. Yeah. Wow. You know, uh, there's so much in that story that I know people can relate to. Um, you know, um, but I think you did probably one thing that, that not everybody does is like you listen to that voice and you follow through with it a hundred percent. Like, I'm sure like you're not the only person who's been at that point that's hurt that that voice has spoken to, mm-hmm. you know, but I think a lot of people would maybe listen to it for a period of time that's convenient for them and then go back to being lazy. It's interesting. I, I, when I was younger, I used to think about this a lot. The first thought was, you know, why did this voice come to me and not to others? Of course, the assumption was that it didn't go to others. Because mm-hmm. I just never heard a story like this. Right. Um, and it, as you said, it may well have happened to others. Um, and honestly, that did not really ever occur to me that that voice may have come through to other people. Um, I don't know. To this day, I still don't know why I believed it and followed it and other people may not. I all, I all I know is that whatever I do with my life moving forward is it's uh, something I would like to offer to others. Um, I'm not, I don't want to live a life of just about me. Right? That's noble. <laughs> I think it's the only way to live. I don't even think it's noble. Hmm. I think if I live the other way, I would kill myself. Wow. So that's what gives you purpose. You think that's the purpose of life is to live for other people? You're, you're asking an incredibly deep question. I think that, at the, well, what I see, I'll describe what I perceive. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I won't say what I believe because um, honestly, I, I, there's no way to know what is actually true. Like we don't know right now if we're dreaming or not. That's true. Right. We don't know. So there's no way to say for sure. But what I can say is what I see when I follow what I see, it becomes highly functional. Right. So whether it's true or not, I can say that it's functionally true at least. Right. It's, it's, it's absolutely true. I can't say, but at the depth of being, which is like right in the depth of the human, at the very depth of human perception, it's not really me. Mm-hmm. It's a you, me, we awareness. And when we live, when we reach down into that or we, we delve down into that depth of the you, me, we, naturally we start to live for the you, me, me. The me, me, me is just, you're, you're alone. You're alone. In your own identity, in your own perception of life, even when you're talking with people. When you're when you're in a crowded room, you still feel somehow alone. And for whatever reason, I just can't live that way. Right? I don't think that's a virtue or anything like that. It's just, I think it's just as honest as I can be. So how? But do it you seems to be helpful to people. So that's wonderful. So, how, how do you? Um, you know, one of the things too that, that I find difficult or, or I talk to people is like okay so you 
you find this, you know, your your key to survival and to living is is you know helping other people. How do you do that and support yourself? Ah, uh, yes. Well, first, I don't actually. It's funny. I don't think of it as helping other people. That's mm-hmm. not how I formulate it. It's like there's. It feels. It's a very strange experience. As the, as I described, as the mind un, became more and more clear, less and less bound up in the past and the future and identity and, and all of that stuff and unhelpful compulsions and thoughts and mo- mostly moral judgments on yourself and other as that clarified what ended up happening. And this is a very strange thing. Now you've done psychedelics to some mm-hmm. degree and you probably experienced this where your body is moving on its own and you're yeah. sort of witness. Like my life is mostly like that where my body is writing the book. Mm-hmm observing it happen my day is mostly like that now and the things that the body is doing are healthy and benevolent in a sense but there isn't the thought that this is helping somebody it's more like a revelation than a purpose or an intention exactly at this stage it's hard to explain to me life is just a giant revelation it's a but you know, after, say, for example, maybe um, working with students or whatever, and they'll ask some question and some answer that comes out, it proves helpful to them. I'm very thankful that it's helpful for them. But the answer isn't for them. And the answer isn't for me. It just emerged. And I didn't search for it. It just emerged. I, I can't explain it any better than that. I don't feel like I'm helping people, although... I, it seems to be the case that what's happening seems to be helpful to many people. But from my perspective, it's only an invitation. It's not something people should do or must do, or even, you know, um, it's, it's virtuous to live this way. I don't think that way. That's uh, I'm not sure that's helpful. Right. Uh, So try to be as honest as possible. And if people find it helpful, then they, then that's wonderful. And if they don't, then, they, they, it's better for them to do something else, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think people need to not, I don't know, people's answers are going to come from different places. Yes. You know, yes. Like one person is not going to have the, all the answers for everybody. Right. right. Or be able to help everybody for that in that case. You know, it's only limited to the people that, I don't know, maybe vibrate or whatever the same. Yes, it's, it actually seems like a lot of this information, when it, if it's exposed to people that are not, quote unquote, ready for it, I, I don't even like that terminology. I'm not sure how else to say it, but they're not open to it fundamentally. Sometimes it can be quite disturbing to them. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm not sure that that's actually helpful. So, so it's just an invitation to those people that are kind of wanting to get to that you, me, we experiencing and, and, and allowing that revelation of the Yumi to come through their own body. This makes it, what's coming to my mind now is like your book about the Bible code, you know, because the Bible code, you know, like Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, all the um, Eastern, all, you know, most of the Eastern religions talk about oneness. Christianity, on the other hand, and Judaism, you know, you have all these gods, angels, saints, and then, especially in Christianity, you know, you have the 
like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Everything's divided. Everything's separate. There's not much talk about a core wholeness. Yes, at, at least well, th- this is the difficulty, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, the the Bible, what we, what we describe as the Bible, is actually just a compilation of many, many, many books written over many, 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 you know, over thousands of years. And they're they're translated and scribed over and over and over because it doesn't have a printing press. So if you're going to make a new copy, you got to hire somebody who's going to write out, you know, hand copy the whole thing. The issue is, and if you do any study it in, in the Bible, you find out that that they didn't copy correctly. <laughs> People often put in their own political views. Right. Yeah, yeah. We have records. I mean, extensive records of because we can we found enough through archaeological study of these various copies to realize, wait a minute, we have no way of knowing which one is correct. And they often say very different things. And so it's really confusing. And so I had a vision that led to the book, The Genesis Code. It was about, I don't know, like two, two, three o'clock in the morning. I had not slept. I just couldn't sleep. And this used to happen a lot before going into a visionary state if, if it was going to happen in the night. I just wouldn't be able to sleep. It's not like I was thinking about anything. It's just like my body wasn't... Even if I felt tired, my body just wouldn't sleep. And then around 2, 3 in the morning, this is typically where it happens, I go into this sort of between state. It's hard to explain. Mm-hmm. It's not a dream. not a wake something else. It's a visionary state. Anyway, so I, in the visionary state, suddenly I'm seeing the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, and the book's flipping from the front, or what we actually what we say is the back, to the front. So the newest stories to the oldest stories. And it goes all the way to Genesis 1. And then I could see the text there, and it's certain text is highlighted in the Genesis one in Genesis specifically one through three. That's the creation story. So you got Genesis one is creation story. Genesis two is a, another variation of the Genesis of the creation story. They're not they're not really compatible. So they were clearly written by other different people, probably different tribes, compiled together later. And then Genesis three, which is the story of the serpent in the garden and the fall of Adam and Eve. And there's certain text that was highlighted specifically. And when I read that text, it became very clear what this means. And it's not what people have interpreted it to mean. Then I got up, went into my office, got my Bible, looked at the text, and it's just as it was. I marked the text that it was in the in the vision. It was just astonishing to me. Because, see, I hadn't read Genesis in decades. Wow. I had long dismissed the Old Testament as being just... You know, I mean, there's stories of, you know, of a, a guy, bald guy getting cheesed by kids and you know, he, he curses the kids, calls God and, and God brings that, brings a bear and to kill the kids. Right. Like that kind of stuff. There's a lot of horror in that, you know, but the issue is that I discovered later is these books are not all written by the same people. They don't all have the same intentions. They're not even in the same generation. They may be hundreds of years apart. They're not even necessarily in the same cultures. We just assume that it's one, you know, connected narrative all by the same intelligence 
but that's uh, that's there's not a lot to to say that that's the case, mm-hmm. right? But the interesting thing I found is that the, the very word for God, which is we often might pronounce it as Yahweh or Jehovah or something like that, it's a tetragrammaton. It's the four letters YHVH. It's typically how it's shown, indicated. Those letters are actually like Chinese characters. They have a depth of meaning. Is it, is it yod hey vav hey? Yes, yes. Um, and the essential meaning there is to be. It, it's it, it's not, it's like, it's beyond any definition. It's the most simple definition you can get. It's just exist. Mm-hmm. Or to be. That we think of that, that, but that was translated into Christianity as God. Right. Specifically, El- Elohim would be, would be the Lord. Yes. Right. But those were actually two different words in two different languages, different cultures for God. One being the Jewish one, and one being maybe other tribes in, in the in the vicinity or generalized word. And so that things just get distorted over time. You know, people put their own interpretations on it. But if you get down to just to be. That's where you get to the nexus of being the you, me, we. That's where the divisions start to fall apart and you see the commonality. Mm. So from my perspective now, it's very strange. Like, you and I are talking, but in a certain way, what I see is two hand puppets held by the same body talking to each other. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you're an expression of that being, and this body is an expression of that being, but we're really sort of hand puppets of the same being talking to itself. Mm-hmm. We're that conscious being. We're the universe talking to itself. That's all. Yeah. You know, right? You bring up a good point when you bring up like the name of God, too, because then you start diving into like Kabbalism. And that does come very close to what is, you know, to Taoism and some of the other Eastern philosophies. Usually in ancient traditions, you'll find that there are essentially two, there are many lines, but there are essentially two basic lines. One is a mysticism type aspect, which mm-hmm. usually is not popular, right? And and that's what you get with Kabbal, right? And that's usually talking about the oneness or unity, mm-hmm. the harmony of life and how to get there and, and that sort of thing. And then you have the other, which is much more about culture, history, about um, mythology, um, about judgment, right? Control, that sort of thing. But they stem from the same essential stories. Hmm. It's just how do you see those stories? You know, we 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 can't dismiss the mind that's reading the book. <laughs> do, do you think that psychedelics had any influence on some of the stories in the Bible, like the burning bush story, or Moses on the mountain, and some of the other prophetic stuff, Ezekiel? It's interesting because, see, for, for me, I've, I've, I know that, that that's actually uh, not an uncommon, I think, perspective these days, that that's yeah. a possibility. And I do believe that it is certainly a possibility, but it's also possible that it's simply naturally occurring mystical experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but in 2019, it was discovered and proven that the brain, human brain produces DMT. Actually, y- yes, I, I, I do know that it does. I I have one guest who said that staring at the sun will do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good yeah. way to go blind, too, yeah. I imagine. Sun gazing, it's called. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, but yeah, they're talking about when the sun is right on the horizon, where there's uh, where the rays are not going to damage your eyes. But um, that's possible. In my case, it just seemed to, maybe my brain just hyperproduces DMT. Mm-hmm. But but when I read those visions of you know the burning bush, I, I never I didn't have the thought that that had to have been a psychedelic thing. That could just literally be a naturally occurring mystical experience because our right. brain is producing the very same chemical. That's just one that they found so far. But I suspect that that five meo DMT is also produced by the brain. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with 5-MeO-DMT? No. It's much more potent than than DMT. Much, much more. It's like, it's it's a, it's a, um, it's a psychedelic that's produced in nature, um, most easily found in a kind of desert toad, a Colorado desert toad, okay. Colorado river toad, I think it is, and they, people will... Um, toad licking. Well, you don't actually lick it. It'll kill you that way. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good idea, audience. Uh, but they will harvest the, the uh, excretions of the gland on oftentimes on glass, let it dry, scrape it off, and it turns this like a white powder, and then they'll smoke it. So smoking mm. it does cause damage to the body. But it seems that... So I had had uh, an experience, what I described as the isness experience, uh, in my book, The Unbound Soul. It was probably, I was probably about 22, where I was just like in the ocean of being or like I was in the middle of the sun or something like that, but just unconditioned love, just there were no words to describe it. Utterly the same, that the same, when you look at the meaning of, uh, of the tetragrammaton, it's Mm -hmm. in, it's, it feels like a strong indication of that. You know, it's like (laughs) just, just the pure essence of existence or being. It's actually beyond form. It's beyond the physical, but throughout the physical. And then many years later, I smoked 5-MeO-DMT. It was the same experience. Hmm. And most people that smoke 5-MeO-DMT describe it as they met God. Right? Well, maybe our brains are producing that, which is maybe why some people naturally have that experience. Maybe when we die, there's a dumping, you know, a release of that substance. Who knows? I don't know as we know clearly, but I suspect that what we perceive as our daily life is actually largely, at least, it, it can be mapped onto DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, norepinephrine, you know, all the, the various brain um, chemicals, mm-hmm. right? Molecules or whatever, neurological um, chemicals. Mm-hmm. And that many of the things that we use as psychedelics are actually just close analogs to to those naturally occurring substances in our brain. That makes sense. Because I've had that meet God experience too, but it was during an epileptic seizure. Oh, yes. Or a near-death experience, but it was during that seizure. All of a sudden, I was in darkness, but it wasn't necessarily darkness, you know. And it was something, you know, it seemed like there was something floating around me. And it was completely peaceful, though. There was no pain. There was no thoughts. There was no... It was just love. It was just serenity. It was peace. Yes. Yes. Um, are you familiar with the um, author Solzhenitsyn? No. Oh, no. It's actually not Solzhenitsyn. It's uh, the guy who wrote... Uh, oh, I'm forgetting the blank in the name. But uh, Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. No. Uh, Russian writer. Um he 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 has a character that that see he had he had uh, epilepsy, and so he would have what you just described. He would go into these what he described as godlike, you know, like in in, in the heart of God or something mm-hmm. like this. Just 
that, that these experiences were so profound and so beautiful, so meaningful that he would willingly give up his life in a second to have it. And he wrote, he has a character, uh, Lord Michigan, I think is the name who he, he actually wrote that into one of his books. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I came out of it, I was, I was mad. Damn. You know, and it's weird because it had the opposite result of what you would think it would have. Like prior to that, I was, you know, a, a Zen meditating, you know, pretty even keel. After that, I wasn't anymore. That's right. Same thing happened to me. It 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 had like this weird effect. Like it, it did like the opposite of what it should have, or or maybe it did what it should have, but I was perceiving it as the opposite. I don't know. It's strange. I went through the exact same thing. I I described this as so when we have such an experience. Can I tell you a story. Yeah. As a child, I know they don't raise veal this way anymore, but but they did back then. Uh, when I was a child, uh, my brother and I used to go feather. We lived out in, in um, farm country. We used to go feather hunting in September. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we'd go real far abroad. And we went to the, found this farm and we found this big barn. Barn owl feathers are just, they're amazing. You know, owl feathers are amazing. Now you can't hunt for feathers anymore. It's illegal. But back then you could. And so, you know, you just find them on the ground. So we thought, well, let's sneak into that barn. We were just seven, eight years old. We didn't know we were trespassing. <laughs> you know, thinking things that way, you know, kids. So we go to the barn and, and it's just, it's dark in there. Not completely dark because a little bit of light gets through in the barn. They're not, you know, they're not perfectly sealed off. But the inside of the barn was just full of these little corrals. Inside each of these little corrals was one baby, a calf. And the, the crowd was just large enough to contain its body. So it couldn't move mm-hmm. left or right. And its head is in a feeder. It can't leave the feeder. And it's just going to eat. That's all it's got in this dark room. That's its life until it's butchered. It was baffling to me. What the, what is this? And I was so confused. I, when we got home, I pulled it to my father and he says, Oh, that's veal. And I didn't know what veal was. It's like, you know, they harvest the, calf when it's very young so that just the meat is super tender it's you know that, that, that they people pay a lot of money for veal so i'm like you know but why why in a dark room he says well if they if they let that those animals that have been in the dark see the sunlight and then put them back in the dark they'll go crazy because once they see the sunlight they have hope they have something to compare themselves to mm. mind is a comparison device and so the reason we experience such disharmony when we have set what I describe as an isness experience, that oneness, the, that unconditioned love that's just total, is that we come back to our lives and then we compare each moment of our lives to that. Mm-hmm. Our life doesn't add up. It doesn't match it. It's not even close. So then we're constantly judging our life. Hmm. And so that's the lesson. The lesson from such experience is to learn to not judge your life. To not compare, wow. to not morally label anything, and that will take you to the depth of being. That's the law of the universe: "Thou shalt not judge." You've heard that before, right? I have. That's in the Bible. That's what Jesus said, and it's true. And it doesn't matter who said it; 
It's true. It's the law of consciousness. As you morally judge, so will you be judged. As you are morally judged, so will you judge. As you judge, you will die. Hmm. You will suffer. That's the law. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's so different, though, because like, like, I knew that from meditating. Like The way I was taught to meditate was not to turn off my mind, but to sit and watch my thoughts and not judge them and let them go. And just keep doing that over and over again. Don't let, you know, the trick is not to engage. And when I do engage, or like, which we all do during meditation, thoughts come and they do engage with it. It's like when you catch yourself that you're engaged with it, again, stop, focus on the breath, and let it go, and not judge the thought, and not judge myself for engaging in the thought. Super challenging, though, isn't it? <laughs> It's very it's challenging. challenging. <laughs> it's the challenge. Yeah. But, but okay. we, can make, we can make incredible progress in this way. Yeah. But that makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, after experiencing that and then coming back, it's, it has given me, like, this really high standard of comparison. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, 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 I'll compare my – well, I'm going to sit and meditate today. Well, why should I bother doing that? Because compared to, like, what that was, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's interesting what you're saying because what you're describing – so in if we look at Genesis 3 – go back to the book, the Genesis Code. But if we look at Genesis 3, so Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 are actually different perspectives right. on the same thing, actually. They're different perspectives on the perspective of a human being or different aspects of the human being. Genesis 3 is the actual, is the aspect of mind. That's the beginning of judgment. What the mind does is it compares and judges. It is the Satan. Mm-hmm. And Satan is described, described in the old, the old Testament as being the judge, the prosecutor, right? The enemy. And the reason is, look what it does to you. Once you experience God, then it's going to just chew you to pieces because your life is insufficient. Right. And even people who don't, they st- most people still feel that they're, they don't measure up. Their lives are insufficient. That's the Satan, so to speak. Now, that's a metaphor, right? Mm. We don't need to take it literally as this was the guy with a, you know, red skin and horns and a tail down in the center of the earth with a pitchfork. We don't need to think of, think of it that way. I mean, it's just our own mind. If we just watch our mind, it's doing this thing that isn't actually very helpful. So let's stop doing that thing that isn't very helpful. And I believe Genesis 3 is just a warning about that. That's all. <laughs> it's a warning. Hey, look, if you if you judge, if you get caught up in this idea of good and evil, you will surely die. Right. You will suffer. I guess like the only thing that judging really helps us do is to keep the body alive. Yeah, so we, we, that's why I specifically mentioned moral judgment. Mm-hmm. So we need discernment. We need, we need the type of judging which is like, I probably ought not step off that cliff. <laughs> 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 if I say this word to my wife right now, it's probably not going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of discernment is very important. But the labeling, you know, you son of a bitch or you liar or you whatever, that's not helpful. No. And we can see that in this world right now, that that's just spiraling out of control. People are just labeling and ussing and theming constantly. Even in the aim to solve problems, 
they are doing this rampantly, right? It's actually exacerbating the issue. Mm-hmm. So the, the point, of not this is not a political point I'm making. This is just a psychological point. If you play with fire, you get burned. Yeah. Right? And the fire is in your own mind, in your own heart. It is. And a lot of people, I mean, I, I think like where one of the other parts of this too is to not, when you talk about not judging, you know, it's like, okay, there are people out there who know these truths. And then there's other people that do, even if they do know these truths, they're not using them. But then for people that know, you have to remind yourself that we can't judge them. And <laughs> that, you know what I mean? Like, because they're still like judging ourselves or judging. It, it's, it's confusing sometimes. It's a tricky, it's a tricky, I mean, it, it's a, the world is full of minefields. Our, our psychological state is full of minefields. Uh, so it, 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 it's, if you look at the, the book, the Tao Te Ching, Tao Tzu, um, it talks about the masters being a person who walks as if they're, in enemy territory, mm-hmm. who does everything carefully. This is why. And that recognizes the greatest enemy is within themselves. This is, this is why. What we're talking about is why the master is like that. It's the only way to, to, to be sane is to be aware of just how incredibly dangerous the mind is in its capacity to morally judge and not take it as some light thing but actually realize it's like someone's got a sword above your head mm-hmm. and live accordingly so you become very careful and so there's a difference between knowing something and embodying it the embodiment means that the knowledge has gone deeper in the nervous system and knowing it is just intellectual but it's the intellectual aspect of the human being that's also the thing that's doing the moral judging isn't it mm-hmm. that's why oftentimes the knowing of it isn't enough it's got to go deeper mm-hmm. it has to embody in order for us to actually live that way and not cause more suffering. Because the knowledge itself alone oftentimes just causes even more torture. You know the mistake you're making intellectually, but you can't stop it. It might even get worse because now you're like, ah, oh, I just judged that person again. I'm an idiot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, I just did it again. Damn, what's wrong with me? <laughs> it becomes a loop. It's, it's just this debt stacking up, this psychic debt stacking up within, and it all just holds in the body. This, this The body records everything. And, and I don't know if all diseases come from that, but certainly many diseases are influenced by that. You know, the quality of your, your how you feel right now is certainly influenced by that. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, most people are swimming in oceans of debt. How do, pe- how do people get out? Ocean of debt before you know, not that long ago. So, how do people get themselves out of that ocean of psychological debt? You know, the first thing is sincerity and honesty. It's absolutely core. Like, you know, I find it fascinating how almost everything people say is to get this, there's some typically kind of manipulation involved. It's very common, and often people aren't even aware that they're doing it. It's very rare for someone to just be completely, honestly being vulnerable. It's very uncommon. And most of us, our lives are built as defense mechanisms. We can't be truly honest with everybody because we, we've been kicked when we've been honest before. 
right? Mm -hmm. So the first step is you just start to be really honest with yourself. Like when you're spinning, when there's arrogance, you know, when, when there's deception, when there's a, a, a game of self-victimization, when there's some sort of psychological coping mechanism that, that defends you against reality, those are all ways in which you're trapping yourself unconsciously. And so we move away from superiority complex or arrogance, narcissism, because that's a lie. The fundamental lie is, see, the essence of being doesn't know what it is, actually. If we, we could describe it as God doesn't know what it is. Right. In, in, in Genesis, uh, sorry, just in, in, uh, in, in the Old Testament, I am that I am is all it says that I is. That, which just means I just am. It doesn't mean I know what I am. Mm -hmm. Because it's a timeless being, which means it has no origin. You know what you are because you can say I came from my father who came from his father and yeah. from that country. But the essence of being doesn't come from any place. It always is and is not. It is here, it is there, it is everywhere and nowhere simultaneously. So it has no definitions by definition. Right? At that, at that pure state. Like even the word love doesn't really fit it. No love that you've ever experienced in this life matches what you experienced at that time, right? Mm -hmm. But you call it love because it is, it's, it's sort of like in retrospect, this is the closest word I can get to it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still insufficient, right? Still insufficient. And so the first, the first aspect of the law is we are not capable of measuring ourselves morally. It's arrogant to do so. Hmm. For me to call myself good or you bad, it's arrogant, extraordinarily arrogant. I mean, there's no basis to make such a judgment, right? And so, so the arrogance, we start to notice the arrogance and that starts to settle. And then, of course, the spinning, like you want to buy that car, so you start coming up with excuses to buy it, even though you probably shouldn't have it. I mean, you don't have the money for it or whatever. You start to justify, so justification, getting this, that, or the other thing, or justifying not doing this, that, or the other thing that you know you ought to do, you need to do, right? That's a distortion, mm -hmm. right? Spinning, not telling people how it is, but telling people how they want to hear it, spinning, right? Not telling yourself how it is, but telling yourself how you want to hear it. Various beliefs that are really coping mechanisms that just make you feel comfortable, which really means... I am not capable of seeing and handling reality as it is. So I have to come up with a coping mechanism. That's also a moral judgment. I'm not capable of handling reality. The issue is you are reality. You are reality. So you're saying I'm not capable of dealing with myself fundamentally. When you come up, when you have a coping mechanism, what you're really saying to yourself, what you're telling your nervous system is I'm not capable of seeing myself, not capable of Handling reality. Victim narratives. Another one. These are these are common ways which people trap themselves. I've done all of them. Well, we, we yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a common currency. <laughs> and we, you know, we, and there are many layers of ways that we do these things. Some are very obvious and some are very subtle. And so the whole process is actually one of deep bodily awareness. Because your body tell, will tell the truth. Your body actually reacts to the disharmony of such judgments. 
And if when you learn to see how it reacts, and you oh, that was a judgment. That was some sort of distortion. That was not helpful. That was breaking the law. So this is, uh, you know, I, I, because you mentioned the Torah and, you know, the, the, the Bible, um, I'm going to refer back to, you know, that biblical text. But if a Buddhist were talking to me, I'd refer to something Buddhist. Mm-hmm. It, does, it doesn't, it, it, it's just a universal principle. It's not Christian or Jewish or, you know, some of them have more accurately pointed it out than others. Some of them maybe a long time ago had it more accurate, but then the books get rewritten and it gets distorted. If you look at Christianity, I mean, oftentimes the most judgmental people that I've ever met were Christian, you know, and, and and there's, and the goal of oftentimes what Christians say is to be able to judge the difference between good and evil, but that's the point. But actually that's the original sin. So they're reinforcing the original sin. Um, And it's it's not meant to denigrate anybody who's called themselves Christian, but if you want to be clear and really be honest, you might acknowledge that you're not in a place to make such judgments. Uh, it's, it's interesting. That brings up something interesting. Like as, as a child, as a young child, you know, I was raised Catholic. And, and my question always was, and, and, and you never get an answer to it, is if God is this beginningless, endless, all-encompassing being, that is manifesting this, why would he manifest things that he wouldn't want to exist? Why would there be evil? Why would there be Satan, an adversary? That doesn't make sense to me. In a way, it actually is... Now, it depends on how we view God. See, right, right. Like if you, in a way, if, you're describing God as man sees God. So God has... Mm-hmm. It's like man has created God and now is worshiping the thing that they created. Yeah. Right? Now, the nexus of being is just, it's like a conscious zero. Right? So if you have a 10, in order for it to equal zero, you need a minus 10. Mm-hmm. So it basically becomes, this conscious zero is at the heart of everything, which means that the universe itself at all elements is conscious. I don't mean intelligent. Right. Intelligence is an evolutionary process. I mean, it's perceiving. To me, the table, the window, everything is perceiving and feeling. But because it's a conscious zero, it means that it experiences all potentials. It means it's experienced pleasant and unpleasant. I won't say good and evil. Those are not really helpful terms. But it will experience the pleasant and the, and the unpleasant. It will experience the hunter and the hunted. Because it's a conscious zero, there is no other. The entire universe, the manifestation or the body of God, you might, as you might describe it, the manifestation of that conscious zero, is a game of Pac-Man who's eating himself. Because <laughs> yes. there's no other. You have to eat yourself. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're a benevolent human being in that you're not going around killing people, but you still have to eat. You know, right? Yeah. Every, no matter what you do, you walk from here to there, something is dying in the process. Mm-hmm. And you're also helping to birth something. It's this constant process of dance between dissolution and, and constitution, I guess. Right. And, and, and if consciousness is going to start creating things, the only thing it has to create out of is its own consciousness. That's right. That's right. And so that's what we're experiencing from my, from, from my perspective. And the reason, so this goes back to the psychedelics, it goes back to the martial arts, it goes back to the therapy arts. Specifically, the martial arts and the therapy arts were very helpful because 
what I learned was all about bodily awareness. And I discovered that through bodily awareness, I, I started to realize when I was telling a lie, hmm. when I was breaking the law. First, I didn't know the law. But I started paying attention to my body. I started to notice what was causing this certain feelings of disharmony in the body. And that's how I could see what the law is. And then as I started to follow, it became clearer and clearer. And then I started to see it. I could see it in other people. Just talking to them, I could see, ah, right now, right now. The body is reacting right now. They're doing something that's disharmonious. They're breaking the law. They don't even know it. Hmm. Right now, they're causing their body harm, and they don't know it. And they can't stop it either. It's, it's so ingrained. It's so natural to them. It's so habitual. It's, it's just got this momentum, right? And so this depth of, of bodily awareness that, that grew or developed through years of intense martial arts training and awareness training was, was pivotal. I don't believe anybody can awaken this way just intellectually. Mm-hmm. That's interesting how you say listen, listening to your body. Terrible analogy probably. But that's like me getting sick before even turning into White Castle. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, you, before you even get there, you know your body's like, what am I doing this? <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, uh, that's something I noticed as well. Oftentimes, I, there would be a point where I actually felt a very strange, like a sudden, like something flipped on. And it was after that that I'd get sick. Right. It was, it was very, it's a very interesting, the, the body is absolutely just an incredible thing, as far as I'm concerned. It's far more than people know it to be. And I do believe that that, that biblical idea that it's the temple, which mm-hmm. means the place of study, is true. The, the, the temple is the place, there's the house of God. But the body is the temple. It's the house of God. It's the place of study. But most of our study is 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 really intellectual. Mm-hmm. And if we could reverse that and respect the body as if it had its own intelligence and listen to it, it'll start to tell the truth. Mm. It'll see right through. It'll reveal the ways in which we're deceiving ourselves and others. The way in which we're judging ourselves and others. Ways that we we were completely unconscious to before. Fascinating stuff. It is hard to it's hard to be bored when when you live a life this way. But a lot of it sounds sounds like it's just the um, paying close attention. Yes. And not judging. Yes. It's it's interesting. It's paying close attention, but. It's, it's helpful to harmonize the hemispheres of the brain. So modern humans, so much of our attention is focused. And this is, well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you know, we, we, we are living in rooms that are square. We have to read things all the time. You know, our, our, we don't have to pay attention because we're the top predator. We don't live out in nature. There's nothing that's trying to hunt, trying to hunt us. Right. So we don't, have to be, we don't have to be aware of our environment. And we can we can be self-absorbed without any obvious consequences. You know, people will walk down the street just looking down at their feet in their own thought and not, you know, by and large, they make it home. But if a deer did that, it wouldn't live very long. <laughs> right? So the human, modern humans, we've, we've, we've become so left hemisphere dominant, which means focused attention, focused attention, um, that we lose contextual awareness. And the sensitivity, the bodily awareness is actually largely in the right hemisphere. Yeah. And that's also the contextual awareness. Like if you look at a star, you focus on a star. Have you ever had this experience where you're stargazing? Yeah. 
you ever notice that like you're looking up at the sky and off to the left, off to the right, you'll notice these dimmer stars, mm-hmm. but then you try to look at them, you don't see them anymore. Yeah. It's like when you, when you go into peripheral vision, they show up. That's the kind of vision that's it, but not just external, internally, that leads us to the awareness of the subtle, the subtler messages. Right, just as we physically can see those dimmer stars when we don't stare at them, when we go into mm-hmm. when we open our vision up broadly, when we open our inner vision up broadly, which is also left hemisphere exercise mm-hmm. or right hemisphere exercise for most people. What do you think about like living primitively? You know, well, the, one of the things like, about like going going outside of, of of everyday living, just going out and living in nature, where we have the choice again, but to become aware of our bodies in our surroundings. Yes. Often I, like I spent many years doing survival stuff. I didn't really know why, just like I didn't exactly know why I needed to go to Japan. I just needed to do it. Mm-hmm. But now in retrospect, I, I understand. And it was when you're out in I remember I spent, I spent a month out in the forest in my early twenties. Um, and I remember something like three or four days into the process, my dreams changed they became full of like the dreams became smoother feeling. And what I was seeing was curves and flows and things like that versus squares and edges. And the feeling of the dream itself was soft and smooth Mm -hmm. versus this hard edgy kind of thing, which I had never been aware of this before. And until you've gone through the experience, you might not, you might think you might not realize your dreams are kind of hard in a way, but they are. Um, but n- nature changes us. It's like a nutrient. And our body is nature. So as we expose ourselves to the elements, as we expose ourselves to the flow, ebb and flow of life in its natural form. So, I mean, it's, we're using this word nature. Everything is natural, actually. There's nothing that's not the universe. But, but in the way that our bodies evolved, then naturally it starts to o- wake up or open up the aspects of the brain that that have gone dormant for modern humans. Mm-hmm. One of those aspects is this contextual or larger awareness. And it's so vital to the process of awakening. Mm-hmm. That's right. fascinating. That's like a whole other topic. <laughs> oh, well, this, oh, this, oh. This, there's no end to this. It's amazing. Yeah. But, but I've always liked the survival thing too. You know, I've just always... Because uh, I think, you know, as we become so-called more civilized, we've lost some of our natural abilities and yes. some of our awareness. Yes. So. You know, it's so interesting because the people that lived that way didn't write. So we don't even know what's been lost. We don't know what the potentials are because, you know, modern humans essentially went in and eradicated anybody who wasn't living the way that they were living. Right. And we didn't keep records of, of how they lived. Uh, it's, it's fascinating in South America. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but you know they found from satellite views and whatnot, they find so many pyramids that are down there that have been mm-hmm. lost in the jungles. Yeah. And you can see this, like, it depends on which spectrum of light they're looking through. And I don't remember what they were using, but you could see that there was actually these vast cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I don't remember who it was. It was not Columbus, but there was another explorer that had gone to before uh, Vespucci Americana, uh, Amer- Amerigo Vespucci, I think is the person mm-hmm. Columbus came, uh, but that he had gone through the Amazon and said that there were cities that were larger than like London and like millions of people living there. 
that they had a, they had a rivaling standard rivaled standard of living, and of course he was denigrated for that. There's no way these you know people could possibly be could exist. We're the top of the world, you know. We're we're the number one. Um, everybody else is just a you know pagan idiot. That kind of attitude. And of course, maybe I don't know. Fifty years later, hundred years later, they went through the Amazon and couldn't find these places. Couldn't find these people. There's almost nobody there anymore. What they didn't realize is that there were diseases after those those Europeans came mm -hmm. there, like smallpox and polio and whatever else that just ravaged the population. And then the forest overgrew within a period of just a few decades. All of the all of those human structures, hmm. and they're still there now. Yeah, that's one of the new theories too. Is um, that the the Amazon and South America may be actually not the like the cradle where civilization may have started. But Could be. They don't, you, you know, know, it's one of the theories that are floating around you know, they, now. I haven't had a chance to investigate or check this, check into this, but, you know, we, we thought, you know, archaeologists had thought that, that there were no, there was nobody in North America. There were no humans in North America prior to the ice bridge, which was like, you know, 12 to 15,000 years ago or something like mm -hmm. that, right? But recently they found that, that, that they found bodies, they found proof that people were here long before that. It, it's, 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 a, who knows, you know, maybe there's been many epochs and, and maybe many times that civilizations have existed and died out. Yeah. Story, we believed our story too much. Yeah. We believed our current story of history too much that we're blinded to actually the real information. One of the things I find interesting about that though, is the, um, the Hindu Vedas talk about four epochs. And so does the Hopi Indians here talks about yes four right. epochs. So and it's also the Amazons have a similar kind of idea and that we're going into the fourth epoch. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. And the interesting the Amazons idea is the idea of the eagle and the condor. Um, many tribes here have this story. It's passed passed down from generation to generation. The eagle represents what we say is the, the logical, rational mind. Mm -hmm. And the condor represents the more intuitive contextual awareness kind of stuff. And that that in the fourth epoch, all previous epochs, they've, they've been separate. There's like certain civilization lives in the eagle mind mm -hmm. and certain civilization lives in the condor mind. But in, in this epoch, this one that's just starting now, the two will come together and that's when humans will find harmony. And that's also the point of all of the training that I do. I call that total embodiment method. And within that, there's a meditation. But the goal is to take the left hemisphere and right hemisphere and harmonize them. And that is a result of the training I did in Japan. Mm -hmm. Right. That's pretty awesome. Um, so I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. And I hope that you will come back again because there's so much more that we talk about. <laughs> yeah. It's my pleasure. I absolutely enjoyed it. And... Um, before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you, find your books, find your martial arts classes? Yeah, so uh, the books would be on Amazon. That's a great place to do it, um, uh, to find the books. And my website is richardlhate.com, H-A-I-G-H-T. I have some courses that help people to integrate. First one that's really, really important, would be very helpful to people, is called the Warrior's Meditation. The reason it's called the Warrior's Meditation is... It's because the goal is that it embodies throughout your daily life under all of the pressure and stress of your life. It's not an avoidance thing. It's not, 
you know, it's not candles, it's not music, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you learn to incorporate it through your movement and activities in daily life. And so people may find it very helpful in our modern world because we certainly, it's not like we have any less stress now. <laughs> right. I, I like those kind of meditations. Like they're, they're popular in Zen, you know, like when you wash the dishes, wash the dishes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just use it everyday life if you don't have the time to sit for three hours. That's right. And, you know, you'll find that if you if you have that mindset, your life becomes much more vibrant. You know, it's beautiful. I got it from the martial arts training. When you get to a high enough level, you've got to find some way to unify your body. You have to find some way to be spatially aware and sensitive to intentions and energies. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not, anybody who's a skilled martial artist, like a master level, you're doomed. I mean, you're just absolutely, <laughs> utterly, you're screwed. Uh, and my teacher was just, you know, I thought he was a god when I was in the He was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and and so the only way that I could learn what he was doing and really get to a higher level was was to develop a, a, a way of, because he didn't teach meditation. Mm-hmm. I, he didn't teach techniques. You had to find it yourself, and this is my way of finding it and getting to the highest level in that in that type of training. And so now I just share it as much as I can because it seems it was just so helpful. People yeah. find it very helpful. So generally, anyone was interested in it anyway. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'll put a, a link to your website and to the books in the notes of this episode. And again, I want to thank you to come. Thank you for coming on, and uh, will definitely be a part two. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Hang out for one second, and I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Recording stopped. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share.